Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Urban Village Church. Uh, my name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving um, as a pastor at UBC. Uh, I spend most of my time at our Hyde Park Woodland location, but it is a great joy to be here. The last time I was in this space um, was uh, just before uh, UBC Edgewater relaunched into, or sorry, UBC Andersonville relaunched into UBC um, Edgewater, and I came here with um, the other pastors and folks on staff, and we prayed over this space that God would show up and move in people's hearts and minds and in new and powerful ways, and um, it is a gift to be here to worship with you and, and maybe be a small part of that um, as, uh, as we journey together in understanding a little bit more of who and how God is in this world. So um, as we uh, prepare to hear what God might be saying to us today, I um, invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of coming together, of, of singing together, of sharing stories and hearing one another. Um, we ask that, that um, in all of these offerings that we bring to this space and to you, that we might catch a glimpse of who you are in so many different ways. And we pray for this moment now as we enter into um, your word and, and we ask that your spirit would just be at work within us, um, comforting us and encouraging us and challenging us, calling us um, into our highest selves that we might um, more fully be um, conduits of your love and grace and justice in this world. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So some of you might know that I have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Sela, and I have to say that parenting, uh, for as frustrating and mundane and hilarious as it is, there are these moments of realization um, where you recognize that what you are doing is actually shaping a human being. <laughs> um, all those inner voices, uh, that intrinsic feeling of self-worth and, and value and respect, um, that's on me. <laughs> uh, well, not totally, but at two years old, I and my partner, Rich, uh, feature pretty prominently in her life, and I had one of those realization moments uh, last week when Jackie, a parent at UBC Hyde Park Woodlawn, posted one of those like, Facebook lists of questions, right, that you ask, and of course I took it because I waste my time. And the instructions were pretty basic. It said, child test, do not coach their answer. And then it had this list of questions. And the questions were things like, what's your name? What's your favorite color? Uh, who is your best friend? Blah, 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 right? And so I was asking Sela these questions, and they were sort of, her answers were sort of funny and cute. And then I asked these two questions that left me sort of speechless. What makes you sad? Mama. What makes you happy? Mama. 
geez louise, right? <laughs> Another moment when I was reminded that what I do and what I say really matters, whether I'm aware of it or not. So we've been trying to be much more intentional about these impressions, Rich and I. We try to practice emotion coaching and all the things that people say are important. And one of these practices for us has been telling Sela that even though sometimes we get upset about the things that she does um, or because we're having a hard day, um, that it doesn't change the fact that we love her no matter what. And it's this last part, no matter what, that has kind of lodged itself deep within her. Often when we say to her, I love you, she'll respond, no matter what. You guys, I might be doing a lot of things wrong, but seriously, this feels like evidence that aside from the fact that she's not dead and is really healthy, I'm definitely doing something right, right? Because for me, the one goal that I had in my heart and in my mind when I was pregnant with Sela, not knowing who she was gonna be, was that she would be an emotionally healthy person. Because in my personal experience and in my pastoral observation, um, one of the most powerful central starting points for emotional health is knowing that you are loved. I have seen incredibly gifted, kind, thoughtful people with an inner torment or proclivity for self-destruction because they have this nagging self-doubt. Am I good enough? If someone really knows me, will they really love me? And so I think it's no coincidence in our, in, that in our passage for this morning, at this starting point of Jesus' ministry, he is assured in no uncertain terms that he is beloved and is the source of God's happiness. So Jesus' baptism is featured in all four Gospels, but I have to say one of the things that I like about Luke's version of it is that Jesus is described as being part of the crowd, just a crowd. And in this version, he isn't called out like he is in the Gospel of John. Look, here's the Lamb of God. And he doesn't have a kind of mini kerfuffle like he does in Matthew. You're supposed to be baptizing me. No, Jesus is indistinguishable among a crowd of people. And the only thing that is different in this moment is an anointing and an assurance that he experiences. Externally, Jesus didn't look any different, but internally, he had stepped into a new identity. Before he did anything Lord and Savior worthy, Jesus was claimed and named as deeply loved and undeniably called. This is what Jesus' baptism meant. And as it turns out, this is much of what baptism means for us as well. Regardless of whether it was as an infant or an adult, by sprinkling or immersion, indoors or outdoors, before we did something worthy of anything, the waters of baptism declared that we are deeply loved and undeniably called. Not because of anything we'd accomplished, but because of what was accomplished on our behalf through the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in the Christian tradition, we call baptism a sacrament because it's this moment when the good and loving mystery of God intersects with our earthy, imperfect selves. And it's beautiful. When we're baptized, we step into our identity as a person who is deeply loved and profoundly called, purposefully called. Like Jesus, we are one among many, but we are also seen singularly. You are seen by God. You are received by a community of people who are both legacy, what the Apostle Paul's a great cloud of witnesses, as well as flesh and blood, people in a crowd, in a community of imperfect but deeply loved and purposefully appointed individuals like the folks in this space. And this is important to know. 
It's important to absorb thoroughly because this deep knowledge of belovedness and purposefulness empowers us and anchors our sense of self. And we need these things. We need this empowerment and we need this sense of anchoring because there's a lot at work in our relationships and in the world around us that can render us feeling pretty powerless and unloved. Amen? I recently read an interview with Kristen Neff, a psychology professor at the University of Texas, and she talked about this idea of self-compassion. And this is in contrast with the idea of self-esteem. Self-esteem is often dependent on a kind of feeling special and above average or better than others. And it's it's not really self-esteem, actually, that's the problem. It's the kind of person you end up becoming in order to get it. You become a narcissist. Um, which makes it people not like you very much, right? Um, but even more, it's highly dependent on these pretty like uh, volatile and fairly subjective measures, things like success or peer approval or perceived appearance. Well, self-compassion, she says, is different, mainly because it's contingent on self-kindness. If you're like me, maybe, you tend to be more kind and gracious to other people uh, more than you are to yourself. But this is what self-kindness is about. It's, it's treating yourself with the same kind of kindness and care and compassion as you would treat the people in your life that you love and care about. It's a much more stable way to view yourself because it isn't contingent upon all of these other sort of external factors that are necessary for building self-esteem, right? It's kind of much more of a, a kind of inner core strength. Because you will not always succeed. And you will not always have peer approval or positive appearance or, uh, per, po- uh, uh, or, or just do well in life, right? You will fail and people won't like you from time to time and your edges won't always be sharp and your eyebrows won't always be on fleek, right? And that's fine, unless it's not fine because now you have no sense of self-worth and because the only way you see yourself is through the external lenses that other people are seeing you through. And how exhausting is that? This is why baptism is so powerful for Jesus. It centered his framework for the world, his sense of self-worth and his interpretation of purpose, not on these external measures, but on this kind of singular internal measure that mattered the most, belovedness. Because he knew, because he was confident in God's love, I think Jesus was really able to hold himself throughout his ministry with as much grace, compassion, and kindness as he held others. Have you ever thought about that? That maybe Jesus had to be kind to himself too? That maybe he had to struggle a little bit with judging himself on those external languages? You know, he sounds really hard, like, you know, he who has ears, let him hear, right? He he sounds like he doesn't even care, right? But maybe he's kind of watching those people who walk away and his heart is breaking. And he's wondering to himself, what could I have said differently? How could I have done this better? I don't know, am I the one who's really called? Maybe he had to practice that same kind of self-compassion. Maybe he had to remind himself of those words that he's beloved. And this, this word uh, that gets translated as beloved, agapetos in Greek, it only shows up three other times, or three other times, and it only shows up three times in Luke's gospel. So the first is his baptism. And then after his baptism, the next time it shows up is in the transfiguration of Jesus, where he kind of ends up hanging out with like the OGs of faith, right? The spirits of Moses and Elijah on a mountain. And at that time, something similar to that ha- happens, um, uh, that's similar to Jesus' baptism happens. The heavens open up, and this voice declares, This is my agapetos son. This is my chosen son. And then the third and final time that it shows up um, 
in the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus actually says it himself, about himself. He tells this parable about tenant farmers who decide not to pay up for the land that they have been rented out. The landowner is God. And the landowner tries to collect rent, and the farmers, um, who are sort of like the Pharisees and the, the sort of gatekeepers of, of the church or the synagogue, um, they beat up the first two collectors, but then the owner says, okay, well, I'll send my son, whom I agape toast dearly. Perhaps they'll respect him. As it turns out, they kill him in the parable, and we find out later on in, in Luke, um, real life. And it's this last agape toast, I think, that shows up where I think it is especially powerful because this time Jesus uses, Jesus uses it himself about himself, right? It's this point in his ministry journey where Jesus isn't just told he's beloved, right? He knows it. He claims it. But it's also a grief-tinged moment because when Jesus finally owns his belovedness, he does it in a story where he fully acknowledges that it's going to cost him. And he can do this, I think. He can speak plainly about it because I think he has a, a deep sense of internal security, emotional, spiritual, and psychological. Even if he isn't guaranteed physical security, he is, even if he is guaranteed failure, Jesus knew that he could live into his purpose, eyes wide open and heart completely full, full of the love that had been poured into, by, into him by God, full of the love that had welled up within him as he encountered person after person transformed by that same love. Here's the thing about being loved by God. It doesn't give you a pass on pain, and it doesn't give you a pass on failure. But it, what, what it does give you is freedom. What it does grant you is courage. Because he knew that he was loved, Jesus was equipped with a deep kind of freedom and courage, a freedom and courage that would allow him to face the pain and failure that his ministry would ultimately have him experience and lead him toward. Did you know, did you know that you are loved? Did you know that you are loved? Do you believe me? Maybe some of you do, but I guess that plenty of you have your doubts. There are so many voices, so many implicit messages, so much trying to undermine, nullify, and deny the deep truth that God loves you. But I'm here to tell you that you are loved. I'm here to tell you that before you have done anything worthy of being loved, you are deeply, undeniably, extravagantly, embarrassingly loved. How embarrassing it is it to have your dad open up the heavens and say, this is my child, I love him so much. <laughs> Come on, dad. Right? <laughs> but this is God's, God can't contain God's self. God's love for you is overflowing and abundant and embarrassing. A couple of months ago, if you were here on Easter Sunday, then you would have had an opportunity to be present for the baptism of Millie Olivia. And if you were here, then you would have heard Brittany say something very important as she prayed over the water. She looks a little bewildered, <laughs> as most of us are sometimes when we encounter God's love. But Brittany says these words, God, you are the love that will not let us go. Pour out your Holy Spirit on this water and on those who receive it, that it wash them, that it gift them, that it clothe them, that it love them and set them free for the journey. 
This is what belovedness means, being set free for the journey to step out in courage, a courage informed by faith and rooted in love. You are loved by God. You are loved by God even if you never heard it until this very day. You are, by the waters of baptism, you are freed by God. Even if there are circumstances that would make it seem otherwise, you are purposed for God's intentions, even if structures make it seem impossible. You are empowered for the fullness of life in, in spite of any social realities that might tell you otherwise. Before you have ever done a thing worthy of love and acceptance, this was God's message to Jesus, and this is God's message to you. I love you no matter what. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift of your love, as strange and as hard to wrap it, our minds around it as it may be. Help us in a world that, is, that understands relationships through a transactional way of being. Help us to be people who don't feel transactional about your love, but, but feel like we come alive because of it. Help us to be people who are conduits of your love so that others might know a generous and extravagant and embarrassing love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.